Welcome to the Final Choice Podcast, a series created to help people get more informed about assisted dying and the End of Life Choice Act. I'm journalist and author of the Final Choice book, Carolise Trays. In my book, I interviewed more than 20 experts from across New Zealand and the globe, along with a number of those with disabilities and terminal illnesses. Through this podcast series, I'll take you on some of the journey in exploring if assisted dying is the answer to end-of-life suffering. The series includes excerpts of interviews from the Final Choice book, read by broadcaster Trudy Nelson. Welcome to episode two, historical significance with excerpts from Professor Margaret Somerville and Robert Preston. I've got a quote for you. The decision about whether or not to legalise euthanasia is the single most important values decision of the 21st century. That's a big call. One made by a woman who has nine doctorates and has been directly involved in the assisted dying law change in Canada while working at McGill University as Canadians introduced a similar law into their country. Margaret, or Margot as she goes by, is a bioethicist. And it was my time with Margot that made me realise the significance of the question we are being asked by this binding referendum. Margot explained that by considering allowing for assisted dying, we are being asked to make a fundamental change to the whole ethical and societal landscape. That's because, she says, it's a decision about whether we will intentionally kill each other. It was that conversation with Margot that also brought a perspective that we must consider the context that this law change is being introduced in, both in the actual timing of the referendum, in the midst of such a chaotic year, and by considering the past, present and future when looking at introducing a major change in the playing field of ethics. That was something echoed by a former UK Whitehall senior civil servant Robert Preston, who was a committee clerk in the House of Lords. Why now, he asks. As part of Robert's role, he accompanied a committee reviewing assisted dying laws operating in the United States, the Netherlands and Switzerland. The committee also interviewed more than 150 expert witnesses and read over 12,000 letters from members of the public in Britain on the issue. Their bid to change the law was rejected in the end. Chapter 9, Margaret Somerville. That's twice now I've met my interviewees in their pyjamas. Professor Margaret Somerville woke to my FaceTime call and answered it. Oh, sorry, I'm still in bed. Usually my cat wakes me, but he obviously didn't this morning. We laugh. She's brave answering a video call with a morning face. 30 minutes later, and Margaret, who goes by Margot, walks me to her lounge in Perth while talking a mile a minute. She wants to know about what journalism I'd been involved in. When she worked as a lawyer in Sydney a long time ago, Fairfax Media was one of the RM's main clients. She also currently has a boyfriend who is a journalist. Aboriginal art lines the wall and her Bengal cat makes an entrance. Margot has her reading glasses resting on top of her head and is chipper. I don't even have to ask her a question and we are off racing at full throttle. I'm working hard to keep up. The decision about whether or not to legalise euthanasia is the single most important values decision of the 21st century. Really? 
My current work is to try and show people why that's the case. It's a decision about whether we will intentionally kill each other, Margot says. The foundational value of every civilised society is the value of respect for human life. This value has to be upheld at two levels, the level of each individual life and the level of society in general. Even if you could say assisted dying does not breach the value of respect for human life for the individual level, the value of respect at the societal level is definitely breached, and that is so dangerous. The first pause. Those are some big statements. I ask for a bit of background on Margot's career and experience to understand what this opinion is founded on. Margot has quite the life story, but to stay on track, I'll try and summarise her expertise. She has nine doctorates, graduating from the University of Adelaide with a Bachelor in Pharmacy. Margot went on to study law at Sydney University. Margot and her former husband moved to Montreal, where she gained a PhD in medical law. She went on to tutor at the law faculty of McGill University, Montreal, and was offered a job as assistant professor. The Medical Research Council in Canada requested her to join a special committee which was investigating euthanasia and the protection of life. That's when she was thrust into this issue and became a commentator and reviewer, appearing on a number of media programs, including a regular radio show. She has authored many books and has had many academic articles published in journals across the world. Technically, Margot is a bioethicist, and boy can she talk. The pro-euthanasia case is very easy to present. Have a horrible story about someone's natural death and how they were not properly looked after, have terrible pain and suffering. Convert the mystery of death to the problem of death because postmodern societies are secular and not religious. They can't deal with the mystery, so it terrorises them. There's a free-floating anxiety of death, so introduce the fact you can choose how you can die. The New Zealand legislation is an absolute extreme paradigm of that. I couldn't believe it when I read that you have a list of choices of how you want to be killed. What do you think about those who say, well, it's okay you feel that way, but I want to choose this? The base ideology behind this is the respect to the right of an individual's autonomy. Well, that's just not true. You're also a member of a family, community and society. Feminists call this relational autonomy. Really, it's an articulation of no man is an island. It's compared to the intense or radical autonomy, which just focuses on the individual. You need to consider the damage you afflict onto relational autonomy. Having someone who specialises in how to consider medical ethical dilemmas is helpful in this task. Her perspective can be incredibly helpful in understanding context. I ask what Margot thinks about the importance of autonomy in this debate. When people say, I'll take control of this and I'll choose how I die, it's just on an individual person and just in the present. It doesn't look to human memory, to history, of what happens to a society when this is legal. It also doesn't use collective human imagination, which says what happens in the future, the potential, the fallout, the consequences. So you can't make a wise decision without considering the past and the future? Exactly. Some of those that have the best handle of looking to the past, present and future, looking to the individual and to the society, are First Nations people groups. In Australia and Canada, the Indigenous people are not promoting this and are generally completely anti-euthanasia. Margot says the discussion around assisted dying is essentially a social values political issue. Society has to work out whether it wants this or not, 
but in order to make a wise decision, they have to understand the full implications of what they're doing. The problem is, by reducing it to looking at an individual person or not looking at the past or future, wise decisions are not being made. We have to ask why, for at least 2,000 years, have we prohibited doctors from killing people? Why suddenly are we saying now it is all right? Why are we getting doctors to do it? Doctors are no more able to answer the question than any other person. Chapter 14. Robert Preston Robert states that there are three tests that would have to be passed before assisted dying could be responsibly licensed by law. He suggests we start with the law, as this is the key to understanding the debate. What is being proposed is a change in the law. So, what is the law? Very few people understand that. The law in New Zealand is very similar to the law in Britain. Encouraging or assisting suicide is illegal. The purpose of the law is to outlaw practices which are harmful to society. There are penalties for people who do that out of criminal intent. But there is also discretion for prosecutors where it is very clear there is no criminal intent and the circumstances are exceptional. That's the way we deal with any law. Robert says nobody would want to see a mother who has no money and steals because she's desperate to feed her child prosecuted in a heavy-handed way. Nor would anyone want to see a father speeding in his car, rushing to take his child to hospital, prosecuted harshly. We look to see exceptional cases dealt with exceptionally, and that's what the law does right now. That's totally different to what is being proposed. What's being proposed is creating a licensing system whereby, provided you are thought to have fulfilled a certain number of criteria, you can go ahead and do this with impunity. We do not license by law acts that are generally harmful to society, but which, in highly exceptional circumstances, may be forgivable. There are three tests that have to be passed before a law should be changed, Robert says. The first is you need to show that the current law is not working. And you would say ours is? Yes. Those in favour of assisted dying would beg to differ. Let's say the current law fails the first test. I'm curious to hear what Robert's second test is. Can you do it safely? The question of safeguards. Robert says that's the third test. Explain why this is a job for the medical profession. It isn't a medical issue, but a social issue for discussion by a court, not the medical profession. It's the role of the courts to balance rights for some against protection for others. It's an interesting concept moving the application process from the medical field to the courtroom, but no other nation that has introduced the law has made that move. Robert says the law as it stands in our countries has a rational boundary. As one parliamentarian so well put, laws are like nation states. They are more secure when their boundaries rest on natural frontiers. The law we have now rests on such a frontier. It rests on the principle that we do not involve ourselves in deliberately bringing about the deaths of other people. Once you abandon that principle and introduce arbitrary criteria like terminal illness, that boundary becomes just a line in the sand, easily crossed and hard to defend. At the moment, you can defend the law's criteria because they are natural criteria. But the minute you start changing that, you open a can of worms. There's no rational boundary. That is why these laws tend to get extended. Robert says he's been shocked at how everyone struggles to keep an objective view on the issue. You can't make law based on just your own story. People have asked me if I would want this assisted dying for myself. I honestly don't know, but the fact that I might want it for myself is not a reason to change the law.
Margaret's bioethical perspective and Robert's three-step law change analysis adds some fascinating points to this discussion. The first test Robert suggests is considering if our existing law needs to be changed. Is there enough reason to introduce something new? Is the current law not working? The second test a new law needs to pass is, can you do it safely? And thirdly, should doctors be the ones assessing patients, checking eligibility and detecting coercion? In some ways, it's like they're the judge, jury and executioner in assisted dying processes. Sure, there's an oversight committee involved, but really, they just get the information the doctor provides them with. There's no real way to assess the doctor's assessment. Both Robert and Margot question why this law is being introduced now in history. Margot says she believes it's because of broad societal reasons which include existential factors, loss of hope, loss of meaning, loss of the sense of there being something special about being a human. Margot says she doesn't mean those who want to use it are hopeless cases, but rather they have lost hope most often lost because their hope was dependent on having a connection to the future. Famous writer Viktor Frankl was in Auschwitz concentration camp. After he survived, he was interviewed and asked, how did you help people? He said, if you give people a why to live, they can find a how to live. Margot says she thinks what's missing is the why to live, and that every one of us can be that why for someone else. It's an interesting thought and brings a sense of responsibility that each one of us can potentially help relieve some of the suffering experienced by those at the end of life. The impact of this law will be significant and affect more than just those with terminal illness. We have to ask ourselves if the value of respect for human life at an individual or societal level is going to be breached by the End of Life Choice Act. It's another reason why we need to get informed. In the next episode, we will hear from those within an industry which will be affected the most by this law change, doctors. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it and tell a friend about it? Purchase a copy of The Final Choice book from your local bookstore or online at thefinalchoice.nz where an ebook version is also available.